There we go. So apparently we're recording. We're going to see. We are recording. Ah! From your Zoom in. In South Bend, Indiana. Technically Notre Dame, Indiana. So wait. Notre Dame incorporated its own city within South Bend? So I don't really know how it works, except that my shipping address is Notre Dame, Indiana, not South Bend, Indiana. So Chris, welcome back from summer, and welcome back to the Sausage of Science. Thanks. It's great to be here, Kara. How was your summer? Um, it was an incredibly chaotic summer. Uh, moving, there were some family issues, and various research things and writing things that all kind of caved in together at once, but I'm on the other side of it now. So right on. Yeah. How about you? My summer was also chaotic. I did not move, but I did uh, spend a week in D.C. for a AAAS public engagement fellowship, which was super cool and awesome. And what's the name it, of that fellowship again? It is the Leshner Fellowship that a previous guest of ours, Julie Lesnick, was also a fellow of and turned me on to and helped me out with. So... Thank you, Julie, and thank you, AAAS, for an awesome week. They were teaching us how to do, ironically, the kind of stuff that we're doing right here, but to do it better and to get a better distribution. They love the Sausage of Science podcast, I will say. They think it's a great name. They really dug that. They were excited to hear that when they did our on-camera interviews. We got to go to Congress and talk to bigwigs and meet did with staffers. I'm sorry? Did you yell at Congress? No, 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 because the staffers who were willing to meet with us were already sympathetic to science. But I will say, I will say while we were there, we found out there are two bipartisan supported bills on the floor, one to increase diversity in the sciences and one to address sexual harassment and gender issues in the sciences. I forget now. It's been a month and a week and a day who the original sponsor of the bill was. But like I said, bipartisan support's a really good, really good potential for, for that making it through. So that was that was really promising and cool. And I, I just want to, you know, give a shout out for the folks listening, because this fellowship is an annual thing. And the support they give, even though it's a one year fellowship, is for the rest of your life. So the folks in the public engagement program there are amazing and awesome and just know a ton of stuff and a ton of people and have been totally hooking me up. Oh, that's great. The next one is the subject or the topic that uh, they base each year around varies. So my year was human augmentation. So I applied because my tattooing research is, is a form of human augmentation. And the next year is artificial intelligence. Oh, interesting. Really cool. And you only have to loosely make the argument because they're <laughs> very generous and accepting. They really want diverse fellows from a lot of different disciplines and they love anthropology and want more anthropologists. No, that's great. Um, I'm trying to find because it was on my calendar when the application is actually due. Yeah, it's this fall sometime. I can't remember off the top of my head either. But yeah, it's we'll have to put that um, in the show notes. Yeah, we should do that. But I think you bring up something that's actually going to segue quite nicely into something we're doing on the Sausage of Science that's kind of new. What's that, Kara? 
so it's something that we are, at least at this point, calling Hackademics. And it's going to be a series of podcasts that we'll release in our regular rotation, but maybe every other one, uh, that talk about different skills and different issues that we both need and face in academia, and hopefully give you some helpful advice uh, for managing some of these trickier things. So for example, uh, you brought up sexual harassment. Uh, we're going to hopefully have Kate Clancy on the show to talk about basically hostile environments and what you can do uh, to help combat that, but also what to do if you find yourself in one of those situations. Who can you go to? Who can you talk to? We're also going to talk about things like alternative teaching methods, imposter syndrome, uh, demystifying the publication process. And today, which I think is going to be a very timely interview since we are just back into the semester and a lot of people have come back from doing field work, uh, we're going to be talking to Augustine Fuentes about coming back from the field. And though that sounds like, well, yeah, you came back from the field, there's a lot of stuff that happens to people uh, when they spend an extended period of time in the field. And there's this sort of like reverse culture shock coming back home. And you can deal with a lot of mental and emotional issues when you're trying to readjust to life back home. And also, if, especially for, for folks coming back from dissertation field work, that mountain of data analysis and writing up that is about to have to happen. And a lot of people struggle with it, but nobody talks about it. And it's a, a very little recognized problem that a lot of us face. But Kara, I talk to you about it all the time because I came back from the field and coming back from the field kicked my ass way more than being in the field. And it's taken me three weeks to readjust. And so let's get a perspective on that. How long were you in the field this time? For almost a month, about as long, I was about in the field about as long as it took me to recover from being in the field. But that's the thing. I mean, and it's different for everybody. And so, you know, part of me, I wanted to share my own story from my dissertation field work uh, and coming back to kind of set this up. And I know Augustine has a story as well that he's going to tell. Uh, but I spent seven months in the Rocky Mountains for my field work. And, you know, the Rocky Mountains is the United States. So this wasn't super remote, removed sort of, of field Wait. work. The Rocky Mountains are in the United States? What? What? <laughs> um, anyway. Oh, that's not the punchline. That Go is ahead. not the punchline. Uh, but the punchline was I wasn't technically all that far from home, but I was away from home for seven months, and I was away from my friends and my partner and my pets and all of that. Uh, and it was isolating to some degree. And I remember coming back from the field, and I was paralyzed, absolutely paralyzed. I could not do work. There was just nothing I could do to make me actually start even looking at my data. I would open up these files. Um, it was the heart rate monitor data more than anything that paralyzed me, knowing that there were literally millions and millions of data points that I had to go through. I would open up a file, stare at it for like 20 minutes doing nothing, and then just walk away. And then it might be another four days before I was able to even open another file again. And I think it took me something like three months, three months to even start to, to clean up that data and to organize that data. And I thought there was something like wrong with me and only me, that the, there was some reason that I alone must be experiencing this and nobody else experiences this. And so the isolation I felt in the field like carried over into I complained all summer, all August, about coming yeah. back from Samoa, but did I ever tell you about m my coming back from the field dissertation story? Because it's... No. 
in some ways similar, and I'll, I'll be brief, because basically my field site was my backyard. I lived in the same town, but I had gotten my job, at ABD, and literally started my job a week after I defended, which was literally a week after, like I did everything at the same time. So kids don't do this at home. And that sounds very condescending, but I'm 48 this year. So kids don't do that at home. I did my data collection, my writing and applying for jobs all at the same time because I had three toddlers at home. Again, don't do this at home, but I got the job started here. And like you, I had a large pile of data and I was so freaked out and depressed and had imposter syndrome coming out the wazoo. And what should have been a glorious start to my new life was utterly, utterly depressing and stressful. And that whole first year of my job here, I just was struggling big time. I hated my data. So let me ask you this. Did you talk to anybody about it? <laughs> exactly. No. Because neither did I, because I totally thought my advisor would be like, get over it. You're like, this is a sign of weakness and you just need to do it because it's not something that we ever talk about. And it's not something that people are, are warned about before even going into the field, that this is something that they may experience when they get back. I talked to Sharon DeWitt, who we've had on the pod previously, because she's a friend of mine. I TA'd for her. I talked to Walt Little, who was on my committee. Maybe a few other people. Three years later, mm -hmm. I was in mid-tenure and still freaking out about getting pubs out and just having a nervous breakdown. Went on Lexapro, anti-anxiety, antidepressants, you know, all that stuff. And honestly, you and I had, let's, we can put it in air quotes, fairly cushy field sites. Yeah. And I mean, you Born think to about, Pentecostal churches. Yeah, no, no threats there. Think about people who work with immigrant communities. Oh, I know. Vulnerable communities. And they probably see horribly traumatic shit but they're dealing with processing those experiences. Sure. Well, that's why, you know, a few years ago, we put together a session for AAA on sort of some of these kinds of things. And Rebecca Lester at WashU is a psychological anthropologist and a psychoanalyst who works on reflected trauma. And, you know, my wife is a therapist. They get supervision hmm. therapy. So they don't internalize that stuff. And so they can deal with it. And, Rebecca, from what I understand, does something similar with her students. She works, helps them work through that reflected trauma so it doesn't traumatize them. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was brilliant. Yeah, that's fantastic. Know. And we're hoping to get Rebecca Lester on the show for another episode of the Hackademic series, aren't we? That's funny. That's, that's why I mentioned her name. <laughs> oh, tying yes. it in, tying it in. Yes. But I think, uh, we'll make that conversation a, a broad one about mental health in general, especially with grad school. Yeah. Um, and then we can even move it into junior faculty. And then, you know, the associate professor kind of like sinkhole. But anyway, so welcome to the Sausage of Science, Augustine. Woo! Finally. <laughs> Finally. Uh, and so as I told you, and we've actually just been telling all of our listeners, we're starting this new series called Hackademics, uh, where we talk about different issues that people in academia face and also different skills that people might want to develop and that our first one is going to revolve around coming back from the field. Uh, and so Chris and I kind of intro this episode sharing our individual coming back from the field stories. And I know you have a really interesting <laughs> one <laughs> that I only just heard for the first time the other day that I would hope you would share with everybody. Sure, yeah. I mean, and this is uh, to be clear, 
There are a lot of issues coming back from the field. This is specifically about coming back from long-term dissertation research, right? So, and I think, I think there's a particular reality associated with that. There's also issues from all other kinds of coming back from the field, but this one, you know, the big dissertation going out and coming back is, is a big one. So basically, in a nutshell, you know, I did my dissertation in Indonesia, sort of left the U.S., left UC Berkeley, uh, went out, spent a long time, long time, many, many months uh, in Indonesia. My work was in the Mentawi Islands, so it's a small, extremely remote islands off the west coast of Sumatra, sort of the edge of the planet, nothing between them and the coast of Africa except for the Indian Ocean. A really, really impressive area, but difficult. So during my uh, dissertation experience, I mean, it was really a life-changing experience in retrospect, really good, but a lot of stuff went down and, you know, some of it was fairly traumatic. And, you know, during my time there, as happens to a lot of people, stuff happens to relationships, stuff happens to sort of life and your perspective and your experiences and all of that happened to me. So I'm flying back on Garuda Airline. That's it. I'm done. I'm coming back from the field. Uh, there was actually some issues that made me come back a little early, like logging and giant truck accidents and ships sinking. So it was a little, little crazy. But um, so I'm coming back. In those days, the Garuda Airlines flight, which used to doesn't fly to the U.S. anymore, but used to stop in multiple places, but stopped in Hawaii on the way back. And I'm just sort of, I mean, I'm just gonna be honest. I was, you know, traumatized coming back. I'm like, what am I doing? Questioning everything. What's going on? Uh, so the plane lands in Honolulu and I got off. I, I picked up my backpack and got off the plane and quit. I quit academia. I was like, I'm gonna go to the North Shore. I'm gonna teach kayaking. That's it. That's where I'm going. I don't need any of this academic stuff. I don't need to go back to my family, to the world, to whatever. I, I can't deal with that. That lasted a little while. And then I went back to school and finished my dissertation and got it together. But it was this sort of culmination of just all of these things that changed in my life. My experiences during the dissertation changed the way I saw the world and felt about myself and others. Mm. My relationships had been sort of, you know, shattered in some ways and reassembled. And, and I, I just couldn't come back. I couldn't imagine analyzing data and sitting in a classroom or being in the academy after living on the edge of the planet in the middle of the rainforest, you know, in, in a very, very different way. So I would like to say that was a, you know, real dramatic and unexpected outcome, but I don't, I don't think it was. I, I think all, most people go through something like that, whether or not they step off a plane and give up their life uh, for a little while. This coming back from the dissertation research, it's, it's a life-changing event and, and we haven't thought about it enough, or at least we haven't spoken about it enough as, you know, academics. Mm. And Chris and I were talking, uh, this, we, we both mentioned that we didn't talk to anybody about these things we were feeling because I know personally, I felt like I must be the only one feeling this way. And then secondly, I immediately thought if I told my advisor or anybody, they would see it as a sign of weakness and that I'm just not cut out for this, this lifestyle anyway. So I kept it to myself. And like you and like Chris, I was paralyzed by my data. I could not bring myself to look at it. I was scared of what it might say and everything might fall apart. And so what a lot of people might think is a happy occasion, like you're coming home, you're going to see friends, you're going to see family, you get to sleep in your bed. And it's not like that. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to maybe why. Uh, and you went into that a little bit with some of the traumatic experiences, but, but why do we go through this? 
Well, I, I mean, and it's very different for everyone, but I think there's a couple distinctive patterns, but I think there's some commonalities. So let me hit what I think are the commonalities first. And that is, if we do this anthro thing, right, we're already training ourselves to recognize there are multiple successful ways to be human, right? Many successful ways to be human. There are many life experiences out there. And we're probably going to some place or to live some way for a little while that's really different from the way we were living or we're accustomed to living. So we're jarring ourselves out of our complacency and our sort of security into a new place to learn, to to understand, to do some analysis and, and some research. I think that shifts your head. I think that changes the way in which you see the world. And most people, I know I, did not think about what happened if I left point A, my home, or right, what I'm used to, went to point B, something totally different, changed as a human being, and then came back to point A without even thinking that things have changed, right? And so when you come back, I think a lot of things are difficult because your perspective, your world has changed, but what's around you may not have changed and you can't share it, you can't communicate, right? People didn't undergo your experience and many of your friends, especially like family members or other people not in the academy, have no idea what you're talking about. And little interest a lot of times. Right, 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 you know, yeah. Um, so. You know, two things that reminds me of one, my first PhD student never made it back. He's still out there. So I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> he expressed all of these frustrations from the field and short of going to remote Costa Rica to bring him back, which I almost did, but he clearly did not want to be brought back. He had found more comfort there and he did not agree with the structure imposed by the academy and the scientific approach to writing. And so we had to, to let that go. But right. the, the other resonance there is of, we hear these very same stories from people in the military yep. who yep. go off and have traumatic experiences, whether or not it involves guns, just being in this other place. And the only other people they can relate to are the, the other people who right. went there because you come back, everything here is the same, but you're different. Right, right. And if you're doing, as I said, this anthropology thing, you're really different. Because not only have you seen another way to be in the world, right, but you understand that this is a valid way of, of being, right? And you can't do it, but you've experienced it to a certain extent. You've sort of, your mind has been blown. It's changed, structured, altered in a different way. And then you're coming back. And one of the things I found that drove me crazy once, once I actually did make the commitment to actually come back and get back into the thing is I couldn't talk to people about my experience. People would always want to ask questions, but then they wouldn't, I couldn't verbalize it or I didn't know how to exactly articulate it. Or even when I was doing my data initially, you know, I was starting to analyze data. I'm like, I, this makes no sense. What the hell am I doing? This is horrible. I blew it. This is a travesty. And this is some of the frustration I've heard from, from the students as well. We're trying to fit what is inherently not neat and tidy and elegant right. into theoretical models. Right. And so the ubiquitous complaint of having to simplify our research experiences so much to translate them for an audience undermines the inherent complexity of what we experienced. And we are misrepresenting everything that right. we went out there and saw. 
But this is why we got to really think about what a dissertation is and how we sort of envision that, right? So a dissertation that is, is this distinctive contribution to a broader anthropological landscape by a student, right? By an individual, by a scholar. And so many of us are trained in certain ways that, you know, this is the right way to phrase it. You know, this is the theory part, or it has to be this way. Or it has to be, I'm trying to pull back and a lot of people disagree, but it should be like, what do you want to say? How can I help you say that, right? within the broad confines of the academy. Mm -hmm. But let's add, especially those of us who are lucky enough to have gone through this and have the stamp of approval, the ticket to the club, right? Who've done this, um, especially those of us who are tenured, we need to create better spaces for not just the return, but the way in which dissertations are sort of created, disseminated and experienced, right? Yeah, um, I feel like there's a lot of shoehorning in. Yeah. Uh, within like existing, like Chris said, theoretical models and so much bad science comes out yeah. of that and then gets perpetuated down the line. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree about that. And, and, and part of that, I think, is, is, and here I'm using the term trauma in a, in a broad sense, you know, the experiential trauma and the culture shock of coming back. We can contribute to that by sort of doubling down on, okay, you're back. Analyze your data, you know, write your papers, publish, publish, ah, you know. All of that's important, but we got to be able to think with that and about that and facilitate it in a much more effective way than we do right now. And I want to I want to like hit on that a little bit more because this whole coming back from the field experience, we don't talk about it. People don't acknowledge it. None of that. Why do you think it has been ignored when it kind of seems like a universal experience to some like there are commonalities and there are differences, but universally people struggle when they come back. So why have we ignored this? From my generation and before, it was the straight up macho colonialist crap. It was this whole idea that basically, and here I'm going to use the term, man up, go out there, pioneer, cut some trails, do your thing, bring it back. Otherwise, you're not really an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. uh, you didn't study real, you know, you didn't, you didn't suffer, so it can't be any good. That was awful. That was horrible. If I had been sent out with a team of colleagues, even two or three people, my, my dissertation would have been so much better. The data would, yeah. have, it would have really worked. Um, the whole idea of sending someone to the somewhere randomly different and making them do something by themselves. I'm sorry, that's just stupid. That's not good intellectual engagement. We need infrastructure. We need to connect them. We need to sort of, you know, help facilitate this kind of the dynamic that like before, during and after has to be thought of a whole project, right? Not these distinct entities. I mean, when I was at Berkeley, when I went to the field, you used to have to withdraw from the university. This is still in a lot of places. You have to like withdraw to like go do your field work and then sign up again. That didn't send the right message. Because yeah. mm -hmm. they kind of didn't expect you to come back. Yeah. <laughs> they were preparing for well, it. So I think, you know, one thing that we've been trying to do, or I think is important is to let, you know, talk with students beforehand. Now, they'll never believe you, right? I mean, you, you don't tell them how complex it, but, you know, try to prep beforehand. And then when they come back is, is what we're trying to do here, at least, is like provide a venue. So all the students are coming back in a particular year, that cohort, let them get together, facilitate, you know, give them some funds to get together and have dinners or beers or coffee or whatever, create a peer mentoring network so that people who've undergone this experience can talk to one another. I think that's important. And the other thing is, we as faculty need to be ready to understand that each student is going to deal with this differently. Mm -hmm. And so be ready, be flexible, 
Don't expect people to do what we did. So for faculty members and mentors just across the board who may hopefully be listening to this episode and have mentees who have just come back from the field, are there any signs that they should look for? Because yeah. if they're just now hearing about this for the first time, that prep before going to the field did not happen. That, you know, that talk about what you might experience coming back didn't happen. So now, after the fact, what should, what should they be on the lookout for? What signs should they be looking for? I mean, I think uh, critical, important, very, very clear things to watch out for is a kind of sort of clear depression, right? A sense of like a disconnect, a lack of interest in the project or the data. All of those things are actually normal. That's to be expected. That doesn't mean they're good. It just isn't something to freak out about. It's something to, to be mindful of and to be compassionate about, right? I mean, I think this is one of these critical things that the academy can't just run on sort of productivity and efficiency, right? We've got to think of where does compassion come in? And so I would argue mentors should be looking for the students and asking, okay, what can I do to help? What can I do to sort of make this a space where you can sort of work your way back in and also be ready to be like, if the student's like, I can't do it. Like, okay, don't do it right now. Let's figure different ways to get you back into the community, the intellectual landscape in the academic community of the department or, or the school or the center or whatever, without trying to say produce now, right? And so I, I think there are many ways. I think it's gonna be different for every individual. So those are some of the signs, right? The sort of depression, sort of a lack of interest. I'd also, you know, ask things about health. You know, so many people are going to come back with different sort of shifts in their physiology or just even a, a different diet or a different sleeping pattern and be there to talk with people and let them know that's okay. It's okay to feel really funky for months after coming back. Yeah. We were just talking about that. I was gone this summer for one month, three weeks, and it took me literally three weeks to recover right. from the jet lag, from being back with different allergens. Right. From being ready to do things again. And, you know, uh, something serendipitously happened because I'm still processing. You made the point that coming back in the field for from dissertation and later is, is different. But, but there right. are some parallels, right? Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I know now is that as a tenured person, I can talk about everything I want to talk about because I, I have that liberty. Right. So I, one... I don't feel compelled to come back and write the paper right away. Right. I come back and I write something for a blog, for something very maybe superficial that doesn't dig down in the data, but that gets at my impression and that gets at some of the issues that I'm, I'm just hanging on to. Right. Yeah, that is so right. And it, it, even a blog is not superficial. What if this sort of fiction, a narrative, a poem, uh, yeah. sort of a, a, a general musing get that moment, that expression. We're so constrained when we make people write the academic, which is one of the most boring modes of writing on the planet. So yeah. you know, why would we want to constrain that initial exuberance of possibilities of, of reflection? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All those words that you just said, exactly. Like whatever you feel like writing, write, because then later you'll be jazzed to write the other stuff right. and you'll have already practiced. And the other thing is doing what we're doing right now, which is talking about our experiences mm -hmm. as the mentors and normalizing it because I right. came back this year and talked about my experience and it, it, it digressed into addiction history and all the stuff right. that I've been through to normalize all that. And I had a grad student turn around and say, I've been holding on to this for a long time. You gave me the courage to share this. And now we're all back on track. Right. It's amazing how much relating can, can help everybody. 
I think there's also something to be said about documenting the qualitative context mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. which you experienced the data collection in which the data was actually collected because that could have a huge impact on later analysis. And the further you get away from that, the less that context is still there and fresh in your mind. So just kind of putting that down and writing that all out, I think can be a very helpful process in putting what you have done in the greater context as well. That's how you do good science, right? I mean, the science is better when it is not detached from the experience, the emotion, just the, the morass of it all. We keep thinking that neutrality or cutting the science off from the rest is the way to do it. Look, we now know, right? Look at the last couple hundred years of people doing that. Bad, they did crappy science in many cases because they didn't really understand that biases, overloads, traumas, ideologies, that's who we are. And understanding how that influences being aware of it uh, helps us actually do, I think, I think a better science. But I wanna come back, Christopher, when you said, I think, this idea of just the baggage we all bring. And as mentors, recognizing that, and this never happened for many of us, or particularly in the older days, recognizing that, you know, the academy, anthropology, the profession, uh, we gotta be more compassionate and real and human, which mm. is funny for anthropology, about how we do this stuff, yeah. right? Either we admit that there's a bunch of humans here playing with knowledge about other humans and mm -hmm. deal with it, or we're going to keep having the same problems that economists, psychologists, and uh, you know, the chemists have. Yeah, yeah. I've, I always found that to be one of the biggest ironies. And it didn't even occur to me till a few years ago, but now I try to point it out. We study families. We study emotional support that people get and give each other. We study what people say you should do, what they say they do, and what they really do. And yet we expect something different from mm -hmm. ourselves and our peers. And I think, I think something that's really important to point out is just because, like we just said this, the three of us agree on this, it doesn't mean it's easy, right? It doesn't mean we're going to do it right. But our discipline should, as a baseline, say, we're going to try. We, we have an interest in, in, in let's open this up a little bit, right? And that gets to the broader thing. This very discussion about coming back from the field is also a discussion about diversity, inclusion, understanding. I mean, it's really about being just a little bit more human yeah. than the academy prefers us to be yeah. uh, in these kind of contexts. And I mean, that's, that's actually what drew a lot of us to anthropology. And you're right, we forget it, right? Because they try to beat it out of us in the traditional academic context. Well, I think it's that we made it through the eye of the needle to get a job, but that eye really does like coming back and having right. like, I need to write now or my funding runs out is right. really the reality of the situation. And that's yeah. the crux of where people get disillusioned and pissed off yeah. that their humanness becomes an impediment to yeah. their success. And it's denied. It's not just an yeah. impediment, it's denied by the academy. And I think there's a, a particular problem characteristic to North America, to the United States, uh, particularly now. It, it's always been this way, but it, there's a particular moment going on right now. They're coming back from many other places on the planet to the United States and having to work with amazing data, amazing colleagues, think about the people you've been working with, represent their voices, their lives, um, you know, sort of striving for dissemination of knowledge and justice and things like that. In the current landscape of the United States, that's traumatizing. That's yeah. difficult because you feel like, what the hell am I doing? 
you know, writing about this when look at what's going on around me. What we have to recognize is writing about this, writing about these detailed things about humanity, about being human, about primates, about bones, what have you, actually is part of the solution, right? Because what anthropology contributes in the big picture is critical. And we have to not get so overwhelmed by all of the morass around us in the U.S. that we forget that we actually are and can be contributing. And I think that's another way that mentors can talk with the students too is is because you might just feel, I know when I came back, and this was a long time ago, I mean, there were no cell phones, there was no contact. I remember even just being in Hawaii and being back in that sort of Western landscape. I was just like, oh no, well, I can't do this world anymore. This is yeah. not right, you know, I don't understand this. And that was just, you know, that was important and it shaped me as a human being. And it's been very good to have gone through that. But if we don't tell students to expect that, it, we're sort of doing a disservice. It's true. And we lose that perspective. Right. Which means the field loses that perspective. Right, right. Um, it's, it's, it's a humbling, right? There's a certain amount of humility because we get knocked down. You know, you go out into the field like, yay, I'm going to, you know, do all this stuff. Then you go to the field like, oh, every hypothesis I had is wrong and I can't collect data this way. And, I don't <laughs> and so there's that trauma. And then you come back and there's more. But all of that makes us better scientists. I think it makes us better anthropologists. It makes us better humanists because we're just forced to recognize our own limitations mm -hmm. and our need for others, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I would kind of like to wrap this up a little bit because you talked about, you know, we need to try within the academy or within our discipline to start addressing this and address this head on. And there are several different levels at which this can be addressed. And so I'd like to start with what are some things that the person coming back from the field might want to do so that they can, you know, try to lessen the, the trauma of coming back as much as possible and work through it if they can work through it? Right. I think the most, the, the most important thing is try your best not to do it alone. Talk to your mentor, talk to your peers, talk to your friends, talk to your family, snuggle your dog, whatever it's going to do. Make sure that you're reaching out to other persons for assistance. There's nothing wrong with needing help. We're humans, right? We did not do this individually. No matter what many sort of contemporary philosophical orientations argue, we cannot do a thing individually. We need to be in community. We need that kind of help. And so I think the first thing is, is reaching out for help. The second thing is what we said earlier, write something. Put your thoughts down. You have so much going on. Find an outlet for that or, or paint something or craft something. Find an outlet. Don't keep it all inside. Find a way to get some of that sensation out of your body and out of your head. And I would like to also put the call out there. If people are experiencing this and they do not feel comfortable talking to their mentors, email Chris, email myself. I'm not going to volunteer Augustine because I know how many emails he gets. <laughs> email me, come on. There no, are plenty of us out there. This <laughs> is your job, right? Once you are granted the privilege of tenure in a discipline of anthropology to get paid to do what I love, our job is to facilitate students who were committed and who want to do this and to help mm -hmm. them in any way they, we can. Of course, you know, I volunteer everyone who's tenured to be a good person and help others. For right. sure. I, I want to echo that and say students all the time apologize for taking my time. But, you know, the most fulfilling experiences I've had lately are helping two graduate students who were in the thick of things and struggling. And I'm grad director right now, so it's my job. Yeah. But I asked to be grad director because I enjoy working with grad students and I want to take what I have learned and <laughs> use it for good. 
there's something else I want to point out. Yes, what can people yeah. do? So I, I talked about what sort of mentors can do in that kind of sense, but here's what uh, peers, what other grad students can do. If you see one of your colleagues who's coming back, you know, and you recognize these signs, reach out to them, invite them to coffee, go grab a beer, go grab some tea, go for a run, play chess, whatever it is, go see a movie, do some kind of social thing, bring people in the fold, don't let them be or try not to let them be isolated because when you get all in your head, that's when things happen. What departments can do or should be thinking about doing is can we sort of develop programs or, or ways in which we as a department acknowledge this as a reality and then, you know, bring everyone who's coming back in the field together to talk about it, provide them with some funds to do stuff about it. Um, uh, are we very, very clear that there are resources for both psychological and physical health and wellness uh, do is this part of our standard communal culture that we acknowledge this is an issue? So I think graduate students, faculty, and departments can can really be doing things even just by saying at a public level within the department, this is recognized, this is what happens, I think creates a bit of a space. And, and so things like that are important, but we also, we just really have to look out for one another and do our best to help. Let me just, before we wrap up, let's drill down on this and just a little bit more, because you, you and I, Augustine, are both in positions in our departments where we can create a program. Do you have a vision for what a program like this looks like that I can implement today here at the University of Alabama? Well, what we've tried to do in the last couple years, last year and this year, is when we have it, because we are a new graduate program, so last year was sort of our first cohort coming back from the field, from their dissertation research. And so what, what we made available to them was some funding and said, look, we're not going to force anything, but here's some opportunity. If you guys want to get together, um, we'll pay for it. Just do it socially, do it professionally, do it whatever, figure some things out. And we're offering that again this year. It's had mixed success, so we're trying to figure out what the best way to do that. Another thing is to bring them together as a department. We're going to do this year sort of formally and say, hey, we're bringing together the DGS and the chair. We're going to acknowledge this coming back. We're going to talk a little bit about it and then offer them this opportunity. You want to get together, what can we facilitate? So I think that's a start. Down the road, and we're trying to think of how to do this, what, what kind of things you put into a handbook? What kinds of mm. structures and like how do you, how do you enculture faculty who did not have this into a kind of ideology, a communal ideology of this as the norm, right? So those are the two, I think the big challenges. The first one was I want to make sure it's like we let the students know this is real, this is important, and there's some options. Um, mm. I think that's really important. I think the harder thing is getting a whole faculty together to say, oh yes, let us actively create something. Mm -hmm. Is this something that you see being a big enough deal to institute university-wide because plenty of other departments have field work uh, and a variety of different experiences. Is this something that universities should be looking at to provide support and different resources for? Yeah. Yes, of course. But I, you know, have worked for, you know, a couple decades in administration and I want to clean my own house before I try to get the neighborhood to shape up. And yeah. yes, uh, universities should do it, but it's I think I have a much better shot at getting anthropology departments and anthropology as a profession to buy into this. Other disciplines, and I know I'm already in discussion with, you know, different areas, psychology, sociology, some other folks who are, you know, hip to this and, and interested. But I really think, think local first and act locally first, because as you move up the rank administratively in an institution, you do a lot of rolling boulders uphill. So I want to see my own department. Yeah. I want to see the graduate students and faculty in the department first, 
Uh, and then I want to see anthropology, for example, the AAA, mm. the AABA, the SAA. I, I want to see them take this seriously, right? And um, we've yeah. done a lot in the AAP, but certainly BA, to sort of really acknowledge diversity and inclusion. And this is part of that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we, you know, what about workshops at professional meetings uh, where we share stories? We're like, hey, this is, this is what happens. How do we yeah. deal with this? What are some suggestions? Th those kinds of things. I think we've made a lot of things part of our professional culture uh, in, in anthropology, and I think that's great, but we haven't like really tackled this head on. No, that's a great suggestion, and maybe there will be a proposal now for, <laughs> for the, uh, the next meetings. I think that'd be fantastic. Chris, any more questions from you? Uh, a million, but I'm going to hold off because we're, we, we've already gone long. These, you know, no, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to go talk to my chair and we did it. We just did an orientation for the new students, but I'm going to go schedule one for the returning. Uh, those yeah. just came back from the field. That's a fantastic idea. That's great. Rock on. Uh, Augustine, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I know how busy the first week of classes are, especially for the chair of the department. So thank you so much for giving us your time and your stories and your advice on this because it's critically important and no one talks about it. Well, it's been my pleasure. Uh, this is a great podcast and this kind of sort of out of the box, you know, innovative and interesting engagement is what anthropology has been about and should be doing. And now that we have the technology and media to do it. For sure. So for those folks who want to ask you those questions or just find out more about you, and I know you have a new book as well. Oh, yes. How, right. How do they, what's that new book called? The new book is called Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being. It's out September 24th. And how do folks reach you? Afuentes at nd.edu. And uh, I'm Anthrofuentes on Twitter. Contact me, reach out. I'm glad to chat. Kara, are you on the social? Where'd that I'm on come social from? media, but this also means we need to get him back on once the book is out so we can interview him about your research <laughs> rather than, you know, the sort of really interesting part of the field. Uh, but yes, I am on Twitter and I am at Kara Akaba. And I'm at Chris underscore LY and a million other things. Just Google us. We are the Sausage of Science. Like us, share us, rate us. Uh, and thank you all so much for listening. Thank you. Talk to you soon.